So at the beginning of our service, I invited you to look at a phrase at the end of our passage, verse 24 of chapter 14 of Luke's Gospel. By the way, if you do have your Bible, I hope you'll open it to chapter 14 uh, so that you can follow along. But there's also a phrase in the first verse of our passage that actually sets up the stories that Jesus is going to tell. Here's the first verse again. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. This phrase, they were watching him carefully, it's very important to the parables that Jesus is about to tell us. And truth be told, all of us have done something similar to this. You know, we grow up unconsciously comparing ourselves to others, watching people carefully, learning from them. But eventually, comparing ourselves to others can take a dark turn. It becomes something like envy or jealousy. We watch people and we begin to wish that we were them or that we at least had, had something that they have some talent, some possession, whatever it may be. And when this happens, one of the things that we can begin to do is we begin to watch a person to see if they will fail. Haven't you done this before? Haven't we all? We want to see them stumble or take a misstep because for some twisted reason, we expect that this will make us feel a little bit more secure in ourselves. Restore some equilibrium to our world. I'm not as bad as I thought. As we all know, this is a bad, uncomfortable place to be. To be watching someone closely, hoping they will fall. And even as I'm describing it, it's uncomfortable to think that all of us in this room have done this at one point or another. We all have. And sadly, as we see in this situation with Jesus and the Pharisees, we're especially vulnerable to this sort of thing when it comes to two topics that we don't like to name. Politics and religion. These things are so foundational to our lives that we can become twisted in our attitudes toward people who are different than us. We see this in churches, don't we? When churches divide over things that aren't essential to the Christian faith. We all see it in politics. We can become like headhunters, watching for a misstep. Listening for a word that signals to us another's political or religious heresy. Now please hear me out. I'm not advocating that we care less. That's not what I'm saying. But I think we have to learn to care in a different way. Because otherwise, we will become like these Pharisees. These Pharisees are watching Jesus carefully because they're angry. They're angry and they're envious because Jesus is doing things differently and it's working. They're losing their own power and influence. They're, they're a sort of political power in this world and religious power. And they're losing their influence because of Jesus. 
which also means they're losing their sense of their own worth. They want to catch Jesus doing something wrong so that they can expose Him. If they can expose Him, they will be restored to their own place of prominence in their world. We all know this is bad, don't we? It's bad to be so angry that you want someone else to fall so that you can feel better about yourself. We know it's bad, but it still happens to us. Anger and envy sometimes come on us unbidden. How do we change? How do we make the anger and the envy stop? The dreadful failures that we sometimes wish on others How do we make those stop coming into our minds? Jesus tells us two integrated parables here. The parable of the wedding feast and the parable of the great banquet. Now, these are both parables about God's kingdom. We we need to see this. At the end of time, when God unites heaven and earth, there will be a wedding feast. But even now, Jesus would say, God is preparing a banquet. We are going to celebrate this banquet in our service later. Through Jesus, God is inviting us to His kingdom feast now to begin to taste it. So with both of these parables, Jesus is inviting us to change, to become kingdom people now. So this morning we're going to start with the parable of the wedding feast, and I'm going to make one summary point with each parable. So with this first parable, Jesus is telling us to stop jockeying for our identity. To stop jockeying for our identity. We've all seen this sort of thing play out. It starts as early as elementary school. Students come to the lunch table and you have to figure out where you're going to sit and who you're going to sit by. And those elements say a lot about who you are. There are some people that you do not want to have to sit by because that could affect your reputation in a negative way. Even as we become adults, sadly, this sort of thing never seems to end, does it? I was with a group of people last week, and you know we'd all kind of figure out where we're going to sit, who we're going to sit by, and you can't help that some of these things enter your mind. Who would I like to sit by? Who's going to be the most interesting conversation partner during this dinner? It doesn't end. Meals will always be one of the main ways that we express who matters to us, but better yet, who makes us feel like we matter in the world. It's just the way it is. As small as it may seem, this expresses the root problem with the Pharisees' anger and envy. And it's also the problem with ours. We have a fragile identity. We do. We're born with this. You know, the world is very good right now about being born in a particular way, with having these innate traits to you because of the way you're born. But what they don't identify is the way that they see this as fatalistic. As if we discover something about ourselves, and the explanation is we're born with it, and it's unchangeable. 
That's not how the Bible talks about our identity. Rather, because of the brokenness of our world, we arrive in it not knowing who we are or what we're made to do. And the answer to this isn't to allow people to choose their identity for themselves about who they are. That only makes their identity more fragile. Instead, we have to be told these things. That we are a human being who is made in God's image. That we're loved at the root of our being. That we are made to be loved and to love. We have to be formed in environments where neither our strengths nor our weaknesses come to totally define us. Unfortunately, all of us as parents still struggle with our own identity, don't we? And so we unintentionally, unknowingly perpetuate fragility in our children. This is not a guilt trip. It's just a reality. We, as parents, have to pray God's mercy over our children and ourselves, knowing that we, we're just going to miss the boat in ways that we won't even see. Even if we do see them, all of us are still in process. We're still being changed. And so this is not a guilt trip. It's praying God's mercy over us and over our children. And all is not lost. How do we find a secure identity? That's what Jesus is getting at with this parable of the wedding feast. And here's where I think it gets fascinating. Jesus is telling a parable about a wedding feast, and it's not clear who the groom is. We know who the groom is. Jesus is the groom. He is the host of this wedding feast. We take our seat furthest from Him at this table, meaning we live a life of humility. But with Jesus, every time we humble ourselves before Him, He exalts us. This is what this parable says. Humble yourselves before God. He will exalt you. What this means is that He invites us to join Him at the head of the table, to become His beloved. If you can imagine this parable in your own mind. You're seated at the wedding feast, the furthest away from the groom. But strangely, there's no bride. The seat is open. Who's the bride for this feast? You are the bride. You seat yourself at the table, and Jesus comes to you and welcomes you beside Him. He exalts you as his bride, to be at his side. The seat is reserved for us. Listen again to verse 11. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. You do not have a rightful place in that chair. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is not a normal feast. Each and every time you humble yourself before Christ, Each and every time you take the lowest seat at the table, Jesus comes to you and He lifts you up. What does this mean? It means we have to stop jockeying for our identity in all the ways we do. Through overwork. Through trying to please people and fix the world. Through trying to give the world to our children when we can't. 
The only way we will find a secure identity is by coming to rest in Jesus as the one who loves us and makes us his beloved. As the one who is making something of us in his way and in his time, exalting us. Now, there are some of us who, make it, who find it very easy to take a seat of humility. I think this is a caveat here for, for us, for our culture. There are some of us, who, it's very easy for us. We, we think to ourselves, I don't deserve to sit there. I'm, I'm going to sit at the lowest seat just because of who I am. It's, in fact, it's hard for some of us to think of ourselves in any other way than being broken and unimportant. This is the way that some of us automatically go in our mind. This is who I am. I'm broken and I'm unimportant. But again, part of this parable is that if you humble yourself, Jesus will exalt you. So if you cannot imagine Jesus exalting you and making something beautiful of you, the way you're thinking of yourself might not be true humility. It might not be true humility. Instead, it might be closer to self-hatred and shame. And this is very different. These things are not of Jesus. So what do you do with this? You need lots of tools to deal with self-hatred and shame. You need all the tools of the church, of prayer and community, of Christian counseling. Helping you to peel back the layers of why you feel this way about yourself. And what it would take for you to feel that God really does love you. The first step is merely knowing that this is the case. Admitting to yourselves, yourself and others close to you that you wrestle with shame. It's hard for you to feel loved. And from there, you must begin to retrain your heart in the way of love. Because here's what true humility is. Listen carefully. True humility is the ability to receive love when you don't deserve it. The ability to receive love when you do not deserve it. I think that one of the issues at the heart of these parables, remember they're right after the Pharisees are watching Jesus closely, looking for him to misstep. Why does anyone watch people this closely and want them to fail? It's because they've forgotten that they are in need of grace themselves. This is why we begin to look at people this way with envy because we've forgotten that we are in need of grace and that God has given it. We have to retrain our hearts in the way of love, the love that Jesus is willing to give us. So how do we change? We change as we begin to experience our identity in Christ. Anger and envy pop up in us less often. Our own identity ceases to rise or fall based on others. This is one path to change. 
We must stop jockeying for our identity, and we must come to rest in Christ, who is, exalts us to his side as his bride. Now with the second parable, the parable of the great banquet, Jesus is directing us to one more path to transformation, one more way to deal with our anger and our envy. And with the second parable, he is telling us to organize our lives by God's kingdom. To organize our lives by God's kingdom. Uh, Let me say first, again, that the feast, wedding feast, any kind of feast, was the picture of entering God's kingdom in the Bible. This is the image of entering God's kingdom. This is what we heard in the passage in Isaiah that was read to us. One day the Lord of hosts is going to make for all people a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food. He's going to swallow up death forever and wipe away all tears. Jesus came into the world feasting as a way of saying the feast is starting now. I'm bringing the kingdom now with my life, death, and resurrection, and you as the church, my people, are to continue the work, the feasting, as a signpost of the kingdom until I come to bring it in full. The problem Jesus highlights with this parable is that we allow life to get in the way of the kingdom, and we miss the feast. That final verse that we heard earlier on the front of our worship guide is a threat, and we should not move past it too quickly. None of those who are invited shall taste my banquet. Jesus, what does this mean? What exactly is Jesus getting at? Let's listen to the excuses again. This man has prepared a banquet, but when the time comes, his friends make excuses. One has a new property that he has to go see. Another has purchased new work equipment that he needs to attend to. Another is newly married and he needs to attend to his wife. Again, what is Jesus getting at? These are not the greatest excuses in the world, but they're not the worst either. Here's what I think Jesus is doing. All the excuses are about money and possessions. These go together, money and possessions, or family. So a new property, new work equipment, new wife. Jesus, throughout the Gospels, throughout His ministry, is repeatedly concerned about how these things, money and possessions, and family, affect our relationship to His kingdom. Can you hear the thunder upstairs? (laughs) Here's one way to think about what Jesus is teaching us. The biggest obstacles to discipleship are money and family. But they are also the biggest opportunities for our discipleship. Again, the biggest obstacles to our discipleship are money and family, but they're also the biggest opportunities for our discipleships. Now, I think we have an obstacle, when we, another obstacle when we come to this parable. 
I think that Christians often remove the sting of conviction over this issue because even when money and family begin to take over our lives, we say something like this, Jesus is first in my heart, even if it's not obvious by the way I spend my money or my time. Jesus is first in my heart. We can sometimes delude ourselves into thinking that our heart can actually be better than our actions. You see this? We delude ourselves into thinking our heart is better than our actions, but reality is the opposite. Our actions actually flow from our heart. And so our actions often show us to be better than we actually are. So what's the solution? What is Jesus challenging us to do? First, The reason Jesus is so ruthless here, and he is ruthless, is because he doesn't want us to miss the life of his kingdom. He wants his house to be full and for us to experience his fullness. This isn't merely self-interest on God's part. Our anger and our envy only increase because these sorts of things were never meant to be our God's. And even though our identity can be strong when family and money things are going well, we can feel really good about ourselves. But when work or family fails us, our fragility closes in again. And it closes in strong. We don't know who we are and we begin to crumble. And these things will fail us. So what do we do? We must organize our lives by the only kingdom that can give us real meaning and security. The kingdom that's larger than money and family. Again, the biggest obstacles to our discipleship are money and family, but they're also the biggest opportunities. Jesus is calling us to let his kingdom to be, the, be the center of gravity around which we organize our money and our family. Lent is a season where we really try to discern where we fooled ourselves. Are you missing the feast that Jesus has prepared because something else has become more important to you? Now what this means in more concrete terms is, are you missing out on the feast of a relationship to Jesus because of idols? Are you missing out on the feast of a relationship to Jesus because of idols? Are you not tasting His goodness and love because you're too busy feasting elsewhere? Jesus is radically concerned for us, ruthlessly concerned for us, that we would miss His banquet, that we would miss the food that would fill us and wear ourselves out on food that was never meant to satisfy us. Remember, the Pharisees were told they watched Jesus carefully. You know what it doesn't tell us that they did? That they listened to Jesus carefully. This is the calling of God's people. We listen to Jesus carefully.
Jesus is inviting us to change, to repent, to let go of our fragile identity with its anger and envy and embrace Him. Did you hear the words of the collect? We are weary until we find our rest in you. This is what Jesus is inviting us to do. To organize our lives, our work and our wealth, our family and our friendships around his kingdom so that we can enjoy the banquet, the feast, so that we can taste his goodness and his love. I want to close with this quote. The invitation to God's table is sheer grace. But it is never cheap grace. The invitation to God's table, His banquet, is sheer grace. We are all invited, not because we deserve it, but because He has loved us and is willing to exalt us to His side. It is sheer grace. But it is never cheap grace. You have to be willing to give up yourself and all the things that you have tried to trust in for your identity that have never been capable of satisfying you or giving you a sense of security. It's sheer grace, but it is never cheap. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.